Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Formation Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Amy Peeler. Amy's a friend of the show and has been on quite often and a dear old friend of mine and a a world-class scholar of the book of Hebrews. And so we're so glad to have her on again for a second time with Hebrews, though we've had her on a handful of times for other texts as well. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 22. Hebrews 7, 1 through 22. 22. And we're doing what uh, I say you can always do with uh, the lectionary, though I often don't just because I'm planning and it's the way it plays out. We're saying, hey, it's just a jumping off point. It's a springboard, uh, not a straight jacket. And so uh, we're not following it exactly this week. We She's uh, working on a sermon on on uh, chapter seven. And so it was a perfect combo to get her in the schedule. So, so we slipped this one in here. Uh, so our text is Hebrews 7. 1 through 22. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on so that others may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy. All right, so uh, would you read the passage for us? Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 22? Absolutely. This King Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything. His name, in the first place, means king of righteousness. Next, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. See how great he is. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to collect tithes from the people, that is, from their kindred, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not belong to their ancestry, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by those who are mortal, and in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek, rather than one according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
It is even more obvious when another priest arises resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest not through legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There is, on the one hand, an abrogation of an earlier commandment because it was weak and ineffectual, for the law made nothing perfect. There is, on the other hand, an introduction of a better hope through which we approach God. This was confirmed with an oath, for others who became priests took their office without an oath, but this one became a priest with an oath because of the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for the priesthood of your son, Jesus. After the order of Melchizedek and the great mystery that his work for us is, and the way that this ancient text plums into and plays with that mystery. So we feel truly grateful and privileged and honored to get to plumb into and play with uh, that mystery today as well. So Lord, we ask that your spirit would grant us some guidance, some confidence, and also humility as we explore this text. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Amy, what's uh, what's interesting here? What do you want to start by exploring? What are some observations that grab your attention today? Well, even as I read that text, I'm struck by comments that people share with me when I when I say, "Oh, I tend to work a lot in Hebrews." That this is one of the sticking points of the letter. Uh, that for many readers who are coming to this for the first time, it just sounds quite confusing. The logic is difficult to grab a hold of. I've usually not heard much about this character. He only appears twice in Israel's scriptures, so he's not a prominent one. And then it's not exactly clear what the author is trying to do with him. So um, I think for us to hear this text well, there needs to be a base level understanding. And then I'm really eager to discover what is the application. Because I think as someone who teaches scripture, I think there is an incredibly high value in understanding well. But on a Sunday, people are coming, I think, not just to get an intellectual clarity, but they're thinking, well, how does this kind of empower me to live the rest of the week, uh, to live faithfully? So that second level, I think, is ultimately where the sermon should go. But you've got to start with what in the world is going on? <laughs> yeah. So what in the world is going on? What do, you, what do you think would be the, what are some of the key pieces in terms of, you know, the way that, I mean, we can pick it up from either end. We could pick it up from the end of what do we need to know from Genesis mm -hmm. and from Leviticus and from Psalm 110 or what have you. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know about that to, to follow this? Or we could pick it up from the epistle back and say, like, what's he right. up to? What's what's the logic? What's the flow? I don't know. You, you decide. Where do you want to pick up? <laughs> Which end of the stick do you want to pick up first? Yeah. Maybe I'll start with, with how he's 
gotten here in the letter. Great, um, a great. lot of churches have been going through Hebrews. So um, again, the lectionary doesn't cover every single part, but hopefully they, they've heard this. So at the end of, of chapter 10, so he was appointed by God, having been appointed by God, high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So you get- You the, mean chapter the, six? Oh, I, I'm <laughs> sorry. sorry. I'm in chapter five. I didn't say, sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're good. You're good. Go ahead. <laughs> and that's that's where we get the citation as well. So this is the section introducing priesthood, uh, kind of a comparative. How's Jesus like the previous priests? How is he different? Um, and he gives this citation in 5, 6, Psalm 110, 3. And readers will of Hebrews recognize that Psalm 110, 1 is kind of a drumbeat. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is the text that early Christians saw an affirmation of the ascension of Christ taking that seat of sovereignty after he had done his atoning work. But Later in the psalm, there's this mention of a priesthood according to Melchizedek. And of the authors of the New Testament, Hebrews is the only one to cite this portion of the psalm. So he does so in chapter 5, and he states it again in verse 10. This is what God appointed him to, this order. But then he kind of goes off into an exhortation. Hey, you're not ready for hard stuff. So he kind of reminds them, like, you got to kind of gear up for this teaching because it's going to be challenging. And then we get the name again at the end of chapter six. Jesus went in according to the order of Melchizedek, having been made a high priest forever. So now it's like he's ready. I get a sense that the author... You know, if he, if he's speaking, if they're listening for a long time, uh, or even if they're listening in, in shorter chunks, he needs to kind of get them to sit on the edge of their seat. He sees that this is going to be complicated. Ancient Jews, other people are talking about Melchizedek. He gets mentioned by Josephus. The Dead Sea Scrolls have a section on Melchizedek, Philo. So he's an unusual character. They probably have heard of, heard of him um, more than maybe current Christians have. But the author is going to do some things with his story that nobody's ever really done before. So he needs them to listen. So that's kind of the preparatory for where we get to the beginning of seven. Yeah, and that's at least nice to acknowledge just to say that, like, even if it was slightly more familiar in their time, the rhetorical buildup here implies that the author never anticipated this to be like an easy thing to follow, right? Precisely. So he's like, it's nice to have that little acknowledgement. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. Paul doesn't always acknowledge like, hey, my, <laughs> my letters are hard to understand. You know, like you get the feeling like he's annoyed that we don't get it. And it's like, <laughs> it's somewhat on you, dude. Like you're hard to follow sometimes. Right. Whereas he, 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 he owns it and says, this is, this is tough. This is deep stuff. You should be able right. to follow it. I wish you were more mature and could follow yes. it, kind of shaming yes. them, but also mm -hmm. implicitly inviting them that exactly. like, if you do understand it, maybe you aren't, you, you have honor then and not shame, right? Exactly. I love that, that part of the letter. He does, he does put them in their place. You should be beyond where you are, but he doesn't stop the letter there, right? You could have Hebrews with only six chapters where he basically says, you're not ready. I'm going to have to write something else at another time. He says, I wish you were ready, but now that I've kind of woken you up, we're going to keep going. So, and that really, I think fits into his model of discipline that the way you actually mature is by doing hard things and not by stopping. So Ooh, I, I love that okay. kind of teaching method that, that he employs here. So, so he moves here. Maybe the way to get into chapter seven is exactly where he gets started. He reflects a bit on the vocations of this figure. 
And I definitely would recommend, uh, maybe we can do this in a moment, but going back and looking at the appearance of this character in Genesis 14, I have my students do that when we come to Hebrews 7. And there's a clear recognition that this is an interruptive story, right? If you if you were to take out the Melchizedek episode, you could kind of get a really nice story of Abraham, you know, rescuing Lot and going through the slaughter of the kings, and then he moves on. This one is kind of like it feels like it's stuck in there. Um, and that's the kind of thing that rabbis get really interested in, right? Like, oh, the narrative has this interesting kind of moment that doesn't seem to flow well. So this story stands unique and alone, kind of shines out even in its original context. So maybe it's not surprising that Jews are drawn to thinking about what's going on here. But he pays attention to this person's vocations, that he is king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. I think an important thing to recognize historically is that the Jewish office of king and priest had usually been separated. So if you think back to Moses, if we think about him as kind of the leader of the people, well, he asks that Aaron come alongside of him. And Aaron is the first high priest, David and Zadok. And so I recognize that both Moses and David do priestly kind of things, but they don't hold that office in one person. Once you move into the Maccabean era, the intertestamental era, you know, when Israel is oppressed by various nations, well, when they gain freedom through the Maccabean family, uh, one of the Maccabees, Simon, becomes government leader and high priest and general. And that's a whole lot of power in one person. And there's even a recognition in his installment, this might not be a great idea forever. <laughs> like we're, we're waiting until someone else comes along because we're uncomfortable about this. So I think the author of Hebrews If again, he's writing to an audience that's familiar, not only with Israel's scriptures, but Israel's story after the exile, they're going to be like, ooh, you know, you're making claims that Jesus is the heir of David, right? We saw there in 714, he's in the tribe of Judah. He said a lot of royal things about him at the beginning. And now you're making a claim that he's high priest. We're a little uncomfortable that you're putting those things together. Those are offices that are meant to be apart. And so the author can go back to this figure and say, look, this has happened before. Here's another figure who is a priest of the Most High God and also a king. So he becomes a template for the vocations that Jesus unites as well. And that's really where he gets started here. Yeah, that's really helpful, especially because the whole structure of Hebrews, I mean, we talked about this on your first episode Mm -hmm. with us, like the kind of first four chapters or so which are linked to his sonship which is mm-hmm. uh, which is a royal concept and his exaltation right right hand of the father and then you know four through halfway through 10 then focuses on his suffering as the priest mm-hmm. right? right and so you know and it didn't occur to me till just now i mean it's so obvious now that you say it that the contrast rather than comparison, the, the sort of, co- or the, com- the compare and contrast that he does with the Levitical priesthood, especially in chapter nine and 10, right? Um, right. Is the culmination right. of this argument. But in many ways, Melchizedek, and that's why it makes sense here at the beginning of the second half of the book, is uh, Melchizedek sort of unites both of those concepts. Like, this is what you were saying when you were with us a, a couple weeks ago. Like, well, actually, we talked about this. I don't know, maybe last Lent when I had you on from a little okay. passage from Hebrews from five, you know? Yes, yes. Is it 
despite being a son, you know, oh, right, he also learned right. obedience, which is then linked yeah. to the priesthood. And in some ways you can kind of, the ambiguity there is itself instructive. Like you say, uh, the average hearer would think of that as a contrast, but mm. maybe his, his, uh, his insight is to see them as linked. And right, then Melchizedek right. becomes this precedent yes. for, I don't know if that's the right word, precedent. I'll, I'll say it. I'll, I'll put a pin in that. We can yeah. come back. The logic of Hebrews right. is tricky. Like who? Yes. Yes. Who's first? Who's first is a little <laughs> ambiguous, yes. but maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, absolutely. But that, that's helpful to see how Melchizedek and in a way like here, not to be too cute, but, you know, 13 chapters were at the kind of halfway point to kind of think of him as the the fulcrum on the seesaw mm. of these two mm. themes, the royal theme yeah. and the the priestly themes and Melchizedek's right. both. Um, yes. My mind has always just kind of located him under the priest because of the quote from Psalm priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And, um, but of course that's in a Royal Psalm, right? So the, the, the tension right. is already exactly. built into Psalm mm-hmm. 110. Exactly. So he's really the transitional. He, he's the, the guy who kind of inhabits mm-hmm. both sides of that. I think I just said what you said in my own way, but in terms of how it relates to the structure of the whole book, it seems to mm-hmm. be really fitting where Melchizedek comes in. Because the argument could have been run the other way. The, the argument could have been all about how Jesus kind of doesn't fit Levitical priesthood. And then, you know, I mean, just I'm just constructing a different way you could do the argument. And then kind of, aha, totally. but there's this other kind of priesthood, right? But instead yes. he builds off yes. Melchizedek and then turns to the Levitical thing and shows how how his is better. Exactly. Right. And and I think that even that how his is better starts right here. And so um, maybe the next thing to recognize is the connection between Psalm 110 and this story in Genesis. Well, that's perfect. Let's pause so, right there and come back after a break sure. and start right with that. Okay. Sure. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we're looking at Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, she mentioned before the break that it would be helpful to, to reread the story in Genesis 14. So I'll just read that real quick for us, and then we'll, we'll see where, where we go with that. So here's Hebrews 14, 17 through 24. So after his, that's Abraham's, return from the defeat of Kedoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal or strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. The word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Open your eyes that I may see the wonders of your Torah. All right. That's what I want to think of. It's yes. like, what a mysterious. And you can feel even in that tight, small section, right. how weird right. the, the story yes. would totally flow if you pulled that out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to read it in context, though, because he references maybe the blessing with the land, with the phrase of the, you know, taken an oath or lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. That language is identical to the language in the blessing, which I never noticed till today that verse 19, it doesn't say Melchizedek blessed Abram. It says, and he blessed <laughs> him. And so you don't know who's blessing exactly. who until the blessing yeah. kicks in. Exactly. Exactly. And so too, with the end of 20, he gave him one tenth of everything. Oh. So there, there is um, discussion uh, in, in uh, commentaries, old and new, of uh, really who's giving to whom. Now, the author of Hebrews has clarified that, but it's not immediately clear. My translation uh, that I had handy is I was not sight translating from the Hebrew as I am incapable of so doing. Uh, <laughs> it went ahead and decided and said Abram, but, uh, but okay. that's, that was the ESV making a decision for us. It's just a he, right. he gave him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm a, I'm, I had opened my Septuagint. I just was about to do I, that. <laughs> yeah. I do think, you know, that's what, um, what the author would be using. So, um, is that a for sure thing or do you think he's ever working with Hebrew texts? It's an interesting question. I mean, as brilliant as he strikes me and people's facility with multiple languages, I think that's very possible. But he definitely, when he chooses to cite, he's citing the Septuagint. So, there's no and and places like Psalm 40 is the best example, right? It's different than yeah. the, the Hebrew text. So when it varies, studied. he's always yeah, with so. the Septuagint variant. Right. Well, in the Septuagint, right. it's it's just and he gave him exactly a tenth from everything. Out of so, yeah, yeah. Wow. So there's there's a lot of ambiguity in this story. In terms of the the syntax, I should say mm. the the most recent agent is Melchizedek. So it would actually make syntactical sense to say that Melchizedek gives Abram a tenth, kind of accompanying the blessing. But the fact that in the larger context seems to hint the opposite because Abram just got some stuff and he's dividing up spoils. So in the context of the narrative, it makes more sense the other way. Would that be the basic structure of the debate? I never knew that that was even a debate. That's well said. Yeah. I always took Ab- yeah. I always took Hebrews interpretation of the text as yes. final as Christians <laughs> right, often do. Right. And it's it's definitely a plausible one as you notice in the story. So I like to imagine how the author of Hebrews maybe got here and it seems to make sense to me that he knows Psalm 110 because Christians are quoting it. He reads down to Psalm 1103 and says, "Oh, priesthood of Melchizedek." Then he goes to this story because he knows this is the place where Melchizedek appears. And then he starts to build his argument about what he finds in that narrative. So we've already talked about the unification of priest and king. But then this interchange with Abraham for him, and, and, and you know, we, we heard that language. It is clear. It is obvious that who's better, who's superior in this exchange. So he looks at the tithing and the blessing and he says, you know, Abraham is great. He's a patriarch. He received the promises. But when he meets Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses him. Abraham gives the tithe, which again is a plausible way to read the grammar there. And so clearly Melchizedek is superior. That's what he discovers 
in, and of course that fits with this um, synchrisis, this comparison argument that he really has been teasing throughout Hebrews. Prophets are wonderful. Jesus is superior. Moses is wonderful, but Jesus is a son. You know, all angels are great, but Jesus is better. So that's kind of been the mode that he's been. And so Abraham is wonderful, but Melchizedek is superior. And then he makes this interesting move to connect that to the descendants of Abraham. So we probably mentioned last time, I was very attuned to family themes in Hebrews and chapter seven is ripe with them. It's all about whose line do you come from? And so he sees that, you know, Abraham is um, the father of the Levites. So it's almost as if the Levites are there. And so then if you're drawing an equation, well, if Jesus is on the side of Melchizedek and the Levites are on the side of Abraham, well, here's another instance, a story in scripture, a story way back at the beginning of the covenant in which the Melchizedekian line, Jesus's line is superior to the Levitical line. I think that's what he discovers in the story and one of the points that he wants to bring out. So if he's trying to make the argument, hey, Jesus is a priest and he is the superior and final high priest, well, he has some difficulties to overcome. Jesus is not from the right line, right? He has to deal with the fact that he's from Judah. Okay, well, there's another person that's both a king and a priest. And then he says, well, and conveniently you know, from Jerusalem, <laughs> from <laughs> Jerusalem Jude, capital Judah. I mean, I don't know if he exactly. ever says that, but it's kind of. Well, the king of Salem, that's yeah. definitely an assumption. And so then Jesus is superior to that, which will come. So I like, I imagine that he's saying, look, my argument about Jesus's priesthood is not a brand new thing. And this does actually remind me quite a bit of Paul. I'm not just inventing something brand new. No, God has been laying the foundation, laying the groundwork for this to happen since the beginning. There's always been a superior priesthood. (laughs) And it's just now that we see the one that really is the mantle bearer of that priesthood. He's now been made manifest. Yeah, no, that's so great. Just it's just amazing. The I feel like that play with Abraham and then the bringing in Le, you know Levi as one of the sons, which then also implies. I mean, he doesn't get into it, but I mean, even the kingly line on the Judah side is also subordinated. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yes. So because yes. Abraham includes, you know, all all those sides of that. These are his exactly. great his great grandsons. That <laughs> distinction between Judah and Levi. So it's, that's almost like a footnote. That distinction because now we're all the way up to Abraham. We're at the uber. We're at the super patriarch now. Yes. So for Melchizedek to be the one blessing and receiving tithes is to say that okay, it really matters that Jesus comes from the line of Judah, but you know, in terms of priesthood, it's not by way of his by way of the Judah thing. Because, of course, the argument might unfortunately unravel because, of course, that also means Jesus in the loins of Abraham uh, gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So, so, you know, you don't want to stretch the argument too long. but Right. But actually, that's a really important critique of the argument, which is why I think 7-3 matters so much. And you said a moment ago that time gets weird. Yes, 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 yes. So 
if it was just the case that Jesus followed after Melchizedek, well, that would get complicated. Uh, And so these statements about Melchizedek, without father, without mother, uh, without genealogy, having been made a priest forever. But but notice he's made like, he is like the son of God. And here is this illusion, right? So yes, does Jesus follow in his line? Absolutely. But who is Melchizedek like? Well, Melchizedek is like the eternal son. So Jesus ultimately gets the upper hand, right? So, so it's who resembles who, right? It's That's why, it's you're like, right. So like from a sort of textual, from sort of a canonical or textual point of view, Melchizedek is a precedent for Jesus, like we said. Yes. That right. parallels the way Paul talks sometimes. And then, exactly. But then, I don't know, from another point of view, from a mm-hmm. – from a, from the, I'll just say from the point of view of the mystery of this reality or whatever. Yeah. Now I'm not using Hebrews terms, just using my own, but there's a kind of mysterious depth here in which Melchizedek is actually, you know, that the, the son of God is the precedent for Melchizedek, not the other Precisely. way, which is funky. Yes. And that, that actually gets to this nature of his, his royal status, right? His sonship, because his sonship, he's king because he's in the line of Judah, right? So like his body, his flesh and blood, which was so important as a point in chapter two, that is Jewish, that is Judahite flesh, but his eternal status as son. So he's not only royal, he's not only son because of his body, he has always been son. And so his sonship is superior, or or let me say it this way, his kingship, his royal nature is actually superior to that of Melchizedek because it's eternal. It has always existed. That proximity to God is superior to any other king and has been in existence forever. And so then, right, from that, he then ends up constructing both from his understanding of the Son of God and from a fun kind of rabbinic way of reading Genesis. Mm-hmm. He ends up constructing Melchizedek, attributing to Melchizedek some things that are not explicitly attributed to him in the text Christ as such, Christ. right? So yeah. yes. now without father-mother genealogy, as is just straightforwardly true from a literary point of view, and most characters, when introduced, father-mother mentioned, genealogies included of some kind. So I guess this is that old – there's a term for it. You, you would know it, right? Non Tora, non mundo. There it is. If it's not in the Torah, it's not in if the world. If it's not in the Torah, it's not in the world. I love that. And this is like maybe one of the best examples in the New Testament of that kind of mindset, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's not there, so it wasn't the case. And then no beginning of days, no end of life. And I feel yeah. like that then plays this crucial role – maybe in the rest of the book, but at least in seven. So I wanted to highlight this and ask your thoughts on it. So verse mm-hmm. eight, it says, you know, in one case, tithe received by mortal men, by the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That phrasing is interesting. And then, and it's interesting that the name Jesus drops out for this whole chapter yeah. until 22. Yeah. And the references to him, like 13, the one of whom these things are spoken, you know, to be, he's kind of vaguely referencing both Melchizedek and the yeah. son of God, I think is why he's speaking in those weird circumlocutions as a fair guess. Yeah. And alluding to Psalm 3, right? That he lives, right. he will be priest forever. Exactly. So then yeah. you have this, and he knows that's a Davidic Psalm. He's not a dummy. Yes. Right. So in some ways, David is in this line too. I assume yeah. that's the argument. 
or at least yes. entailed by the yeah, argument if never made explicit. Right. It's not just there's not just like two members of this line. It's it's right. It's Melchizedek, David, and and Jesus, I think. And D- David being the one who establishes the the throne in Jerusalem, right? So I think Right, right. Um so this becomes more of it in fifteen when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Yes. Again, whom you could think, oh, is he talking about David? Uh who has become mm-hmm. a priest, a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. But by the power of an indestructible life. So there's yes. that life, yes. this living. I feel like that's exactly. doing a lot of work Absolutely. here. It's linked to forever. The foreverness of yes. Melchizedek and of Jesus right. has something to do with, I just think that, by the power of an indestructible life. Absolutely. What's yeah. going on here with life and livingness? So I, I do think it's good to pay attention to genealogies here, right? This um, who are you connected to is important, but I only think that's one of the main themes. The other one, and maybe even more prominent, is this theme of life. And so I know you've had David Moffat on and his reading of the resurrection's presence in Hebrews, I find illuminating and correct. <laughs> so, and I think he, David makes a great argument about Hebrews 7, what distinguishes Jesus's priesthood is that it is forever. And of course, this is where later chapters will move. He doesn't, there's not lots of priests in the line of Melchizedek because Jesus doesn't need to be replaced. He doesn't die. He can be that priest forever. So absolutely that's It's almost like Melchizedek is just this kind of one anticipation as if he's just like yeah. there to be like, well, just so that you can track what happens later when the real thing kicks in, oh, you know, right? You almost get and, the inversion there. Yeah, and that that becomes a hard question because seven three, you find yourself wondering, well, what is the status of Melchizedek now? I see that he really is patterned off of the Son of God, but he remains a priest forever, and that's where you get a lot of different options for Melchizedek. Is he really an angelic figure? Eric Mason argues this with great strength from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Is he? Is this a Christophany? Several of the patristic authors will say, look, this is actually an appearance of the sun. Is he Gary Cockrell in his commentary, I think, does a really good job of saying, you know, this author is treating him as a literary person in the narrative because we don't have the story of his death, he becomes the narrative template for Jesus's life. But we certainly wouldn't be left with any kind of competition between Melchizedek and Jesus. That would for that is one option we can reject based on the logic of the narrative. So, or maybe he is one of those priests that serves God, but Jesus is the high priest. So there's lots of different ways to imagine how the author might picture Melchizedek as a person, as a being, but the point of his story draws the attention of the reader to Jesus's superiority as priest. Oh, that's good. I love, I love kind of like acknowledging the brilliance of the argument and then saying there are a few loose ends here and to recognize that our job as interpreters is not in fact to tie up all those loose ends, you know, I mean, it's, it's helpful to acknowledge them because they sometimes help us see things. And help mm-hmm. us also rule out things that we assume or take for granted to say, okay, mm-hmm. here's the here's the main thrust of the text. It's, yes. the, it's the line that he comes from. It's the comparison. It's his indestructible right. life. You know, it's not a law concerning bodily descent, but it's a power, right? I assume those that's the parallel, right? Law versus power. Yeah. And, right. You know, bodily descent versus indestructible life. 
which renders mm. bodily descent moot. We only need bodily descent because fathers die and need sons to take over, right? Exactly. Um, right. Wow. Well, let's uh, let's take a pause there and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Amy Peeler, and uh, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 7. So let's explore some sermon starters. I'll, to be honest, uh, Amy reached out to me as we were putting the schedule together and was like, hey, if I, if I, I had told her I should start to make it clear. I was like, hey, if you're preaching any chapter in Hebrews, you know, let me know because she's on the, the preaching rotation at her, at her local congregation. And she was like, oh, yeah, I'm doing seven. So let's, let's do seven together. So I'm so pumped. So where are you going with this? You're preaching on it. So what, let's explore your sermon starters. <laughs> and, and thankfully not this weekend, but next. So I have Yay. a little time. So this is really my way of diving in. As we were reading through, and unsurprisingly, because I think this is a really powerful verse, but verse 19 kind of leapt off the page for me. The law doesn't perfect anything, but we have this better hope through which we are being led in, uh, through which we can approach God. So this access to God. Now, of course, that is a really important theme in Hebrews. I imagine that those who have been preaching through the letter have already talked about, we get that verse in chapter four, where we can approach the throne of grace. Uh, we'll get that, that language in chapter 10, where we can go through the veil into the holy space. So this is, you know, recurring of an idea, but this is one of the key moments when the, uh, the author makes that statement, we can draw near to God. I think about, I might move in the direction of reflecting on how mysterious and powerful and intriguing a character like Melchizedek is. And this is, I'm really brainstorming here, so um, which is kind of fun. So we'll see if this, this comes up. But to get us uh, maybe to think of some modern examples of people that we would get all jittery if we got close to. So that kind of sense of like, oh my goodness, could you think of someone who's royalty or someone who is kind of the head of a church, right? That's really who Melchizedek is. He is king. So he's, you know, Prince William and he's priest. So he's Justin Welby, right? He's the archbishop in one person. And I, so you can hear in my examples, my Anglo fileness. Um, like, but if I got to meet Prince William or Justin Welby and both, like I, I, my head would explode, but the argument, it seems to me, or maybe I should say the encouragement that the author is offering to his congregation, beleaguered, persecuted, getting lax in their faith is, Hey, look at Melchizedek. He's these things, but you have access daily, moment by moment, to someone who is even superior than him. And maybe that's a bit cheap. I, I know that's been done before. We have access to God. But but I do think this theme of someone who is so amazing in their story, better even than Abraham, you now have access to one who is superior to him, to the son, the eternal son, the high priest. And through him, then you have access to God. And I do think that is a major theme of Hebrews, getting them to recall and stand in awe of who God is, God's holiness, God's power, even the healthy fear of God, getting them to get a, get a grasp of that, but then saying this very same God whom you should fear, who is judge of all, is the one 
before whose throne you can come with confidence because Jesus himself leads you in. So I might pull on those themes of, uh, you know, let's think about how amazing, how confusing, and then amazing Melchizedek is, but our Lord is even superior to him and he wants to hear from us regularly. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So let me just throw one thing in, not a, not a wrench, mm-hmm. but a possibility. So we've got this, yeah. this drawing near and the way that that works. And then this phrase, better hope. Oh, does that, yes. Does, yes. I know that, I think we might hear that one again, but is that, I mean, it feels like the drive of the book of Hebrews is all around this notion of a better hope. Absolutely. That really fits into the way that the author describes faith right? Looking mm-hmm. forward to something, trusting. So those themes seem resonant to me. Yeah. And hope and hope and faith are very closely related. Yeah. Very close concepts in Hebrews, especially. Um, so the word better appears a gajillion times. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just looking yes. At it and the word hope, I mean, the, um, the, the, the definition of faith in 11.1, faith is the the foundation of what we hope for. So you do have that, that connection. But just for funsies, here's all the betters in Hebrews. Uh, better than the angels, a lesser, uh, uh, the better blesses. That's from earlier in seven. Better hope here, better covenant later um, at the end of, the, hmm. of our section. Better covenant again in eight. Better promises in eight. And promises are linked to hope, obviously. Better sacrifices in nine, uh, a better possession, chapter 10, a better country, a better place to go in 11 that they were hoping for, a better resurrection in 11, something better being foreseen that they were looking forward to, to the blood of sprinkling better things than this. So it's just like nonstop betters. It's like 12, I think, of them. Oh, totally. So, I mean, I don't want to turn it into a simplistic uh, three-point sermon, but there really are three clauses in verse 19 here, right? So, the law perfects nothing. Like that recognition Mm -hmm. that the law is good, right? Yes. But it doesn't bring things to their completion. Exactly. That's, I think, really – and that gets back back to the sacrifices have to be repeated. You have to have lots of high priests. Mm -hmm. Um, but so the law never reaches an end, mm-hmm. uh, it might be a way the law never ceases, but yeah, that's kind of been the point about Jesus's work. He's done. It's over. He's seated. He doesn't have to work anymore. So and then a better hope, that, yeah. so, a better hope exactly. isn't true. Yeah. I mean, you could camp out then on that better hope, what makes him a better hope and maybe explore some of the other betters, mm-hmm. you know, and how the, the logic of his betterness, mm-hmm. um, Yeah. And then, you know, the payoff, that practical payoff, like you said, really getting to the application is really in that third clause, you know, through which mm-hmm. we draw near to God. That's the way yeah. uh, that we yeah. taste the goodness, the betterness um, yeah. of this hope. Yeah. Because in my church, we do have Eucharist every week. I would feel total freedom to draw from that portion of Genesis 14 that the author doesn't mention that Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. Um, Now there's a big kind of 
hubbub about the fact that Hebrews doesn't say anything about that, right? There's just like this beautiful Eucharistic moment and he doesn't run with it. Though, you know, he does have so much to say about Jesus's blood, about Jesus's body. And so maybe his focus at the moment that he's writing is not for them to think about their, you know, ritual practices, but to think about the dangers that lie in the path in front of them about their faiths. I don't know. But because we can preach from all of scripture, I would feel total freedom to say, hey, notice this portion. How do we draw near to God? Well, Jesus has provided this bread and the wine, just like Melchizedek brought it to Abraham. We have bread and wine here before us today that this is a point of access. We are drawing near to God. So I would not feel uh, like I couldn't mention it because he Hebrews didn't. I would say here's here's a part of Genesis that is very pertinent for us. And that gives kind of because I think if you make the statement, well, we can draw near to God, that becomes a bit amorphous. Yeah, what does that I, I look find like myself exactly? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Eucharist isn't the only answer, but it's an answer that they're about to do in about 10 minutes. So it's a very pertinent one dimension. Yeah. And and I mean, I'm thinking about a sermon. I mean, you and I can talk about this right now if we want. We could say. I mean, I don't want to just get too listy. Uh, we can be listy now, but then a sermon might want to focus in on a handful or just one. But right. What What do you think, Amy? What are some of the ways that we mm. draw near to God? Right. So mm-hmm. you've mentioned one, uh, a crucial one, the one that you'd be most likely to connect to. Um, can't mm-hmm. wait to hear that sermon if it gets recorded. But uh, what are some other ways in which this is rendered concrete? Right. It's a general statement. Yeah, I do. The others that I would highlight from Hebrews are prayer. And I do think that is what's included in that coming to the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. But then I would want to real quickly add the admonitions from chapter three about encouraging one another. So I think a danger in a modern and especially growing up as I did kind of a, you know, a low church revivalistic, all of those great things. But I have an ear for, well, just me and God. But Hebrews will not tolerate that. (laughs) Hebrews is very insistent. You are doing this with others. And so I definitely would want to point toward the communal nature of, well, how do you get access to God? Well, that becomes really clear in chapter 12. If you're running this race, you have to pay attention to the people around you who are struggling. Um, I just ran a race on Sunday. And when you run a race by yourself, you're like, I can zone out and not care about anyone else. But that's not how the Christian life works. I really can't finish. I can't succeed unless those in my congregation are strong enough to run as well. And then there's going to be times where I'm weak and they'll need to hold me up. So those are the things that I think Hebrews would insist upon uh, prayer, Eucharist, corporate worship. I'm sure we could think of more, but that's what immediately comes to mind. Yeah, no, those those are three that can immediately be listed. And that drawing near to God is always intertwined with drawing near to God's people. That's mm-hmm. a way you could say right. it, right? And and in this in this season of you know, in terms of the timeliness of the word, having had you know s- now over a year of various forms of isolation and some people just so excited to draw near to other people, but others of us who kind of were like got used to and, or started to prefer uh, a little bit more 
solitude. And so then that's tricky, of course, because you don't want to have that sermon where you yell at the people who are there about the right. people who aren't. Because right. um, I've heard these right. kinds of sermons, you know, where like, you're like, you know, or, or like, you know, why aren't there, why aren't you here in church? It's like, well, all of us sitting here listening to you are here. Uh, so what are you going to say to us, right? So what point. that could look like could be a, a word of affirmation, but it could also be a word of, of encouragement to draw near in that mm. other direction to drawing near as a being mm. sent. Like who is, who is it among God's people who are perhaps marginalized or alienated or lonely, isolated by choice or by not, or not to whom we can draw near. Then that's a nice little, I mean, this is a little, this is a vaguer connection, but not just so that you can go bring, you know, Jesus to them, but to recognize that just like Melchizedek, there can be people out on the margins of the story that are in fact an embodiment of the son of God in our midst. So it's not just like, oh, those who are not gathering with us are um, deprived, but also we're deprived of them. So I think some drawing near various ways of exploring what it means to draw near uh, could be really powerful and that all links up with both our times and the book of Hebrews, which clearly has a, an interest in the question of abandoning the community and kind of either going back to your old ways or to some third new thing. Do not neglect meeting together. That line from Hebrews 10 is, not, is very, as some are in the habit of doing, right? It's like, it's pretty obvious something's going on in the audience here. <laughs> and so. the final thing that I would want to kind of give as a link to future sermons on Hebrews is that, you know, we get this intriguing, and this is the first time mention of covenant in 722. So I definitely would want to give a preview of all these things that are said about Melchizedek. Well, how do we draw near? It's because God has initiated a promise and we're about to learn about this new covenant and how Jesus's priesthood facilitates it, makes it possible. So I'd want to kind of whet the appetite of my hearers of, you know, covenant, you know, that's an important theological word. Well, Hebrews has a lot to say about it and that'll be next time. Yeah. Good call. That's great. Yeah. And that doesn't hurt to of course, that can also have some Eucharistic connections, um, as it is the, you know, the cup of the new covenant, right? That phrase covenant appears in, is that Luke or Matthew where that language of covenants used in the words of institution? It's not in all version. of them. But, I'd yeah. have to go double check, but exactly. So that's just yeah. worth noting, but in passing. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Amy, for your time, for your insight, for your heart. I love it. Good. Appreciate it a ton. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to Tom for donating the theme music. And uh, thanks to all our listeners for getting the word out about the show and listening so faithfully. And especially to our patron saints who support the show. If you want to become a patron saint, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. See ways you can support the show. With that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>